On this episode, how sausage making, banking, and Formula One can make you a better leader. Are you a leader trying to get more from your business and life? Me too. So join me as I document the conversations, stories, and advice to help you achieve what matters in your life. Welcome to Unbound with me, Chris Dubois. Today, we are joined by Paul Teasdale, who's an engineer who's taken a passion to learning how things work. From airplane engine parts to sausage making, Paul has also found himself consulting in food manufacturing, international shipping, dairy exports, and business banking. If that range of industries doesn't intrigue you, he's also seen under the hood of McLaren, working with the Formula One team and supercar manufacturer. These experiences have shaped his understanding of what makes high-performing teams awesome, and he has a wealth of stories to help us connect the dots as well. Paul, welcome to Unbound. Oh, thanks for having me on, Chris. An absolute pleasure. Yeah, this is going to be an exciting conversation uh, because there are so many different directions that this can go off on. <laughs> so yep. uh, let's start by just hearing your backstory. Yeah, I mean, you, you've mentioned a few of the experiences that I've had along the way. It's been a, a, a bit of a varied uh, journey to where I am today, but it's I guess the theme that's gone through it has all been about helping people perform in one way or another. So having done an engineering degree, uh, but claiming myself to be the world's worst engineer. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a practical engineer, but I, I picked up early days on the manufacturing methodologies and the improvement methodologies, Toyota production systems, all the great stuff about helping organizations to improve. And that took me on a journey through various different industries and, and sectors, starting off in the aerospace industry, repairing and overhauling airplane engine parts, although I wasn't doing that myself. I was doing the improvement work behind the scenes. Um, but then got the chance to um, work for a food manufacturer and was a production manager in a sausage factory for a number of years. And that's where I got a huge amount of experience with people management. So learning how to uh, plan and um, produce product on a day-to-day -day basis with a team of people who were unique in their own right, a very tight-knit community. And I learned a lot of leadership lessons, often the hard way in that space, mm -hmm. um, but work, had a lot of support from some great people along the way. So learned a lot there about how to manage people and how to get the most out of people, uh, what not to do in a lot of cases. You certainly don't go in on one of your first days and uh, and just observe people with a clipboard, don't say anything to them, and then at the end of the day go, right, here you go, team. I've got a, a great way of improving your productivity. It's going to mean changing your brakes and you're going to have different shift systems. And uh, that went down as you might expect, shall we say. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I had, to, I had to humble myself somewhat in those early days and, and just stand back and go, do you know what? I don't know it all. <laughs> I don't even know half of it all. So let's uh, let's talk and um, work with people to actually collaborate and, and go for, for improvement uh, opportunities through that space. Um. I then took a slightly different shift. An opportunity came my way, worked for a shipping company, improving their internal systems around how they would invoice and, uh, and generate revenue. And then um, had the opportunity to work for a food manufacturing consultant. So going back in and, and uh, taking that experience and sort of coaching an improvement mentality into businesses that weren't necessarily performing too well and really needed what I would call size 10 improvement support, which is go in with your big size 10 boots and, and kick them in the places that they need to be kicked in order yeah. to get the business going and then get it up and running and, and keep, um, keep them operating. Uh, 
And I did that for a number of years, uh, living on the, the road and living out of hotels around the, the UK before um, that all got a bit too much. <laughs> you know, five years living on the road and, and consulting. I was officially living in London, but I leave, uh, left work or left home, sorry, for work on about 4 a.m. on a Monday and got home at sort of 8 p.m. on a Friday. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's no way to, to live. And uh, decided with the, the the new wife at the time that we wanted to move out of London and decided to uh, eventually head off to New Zealand. You know, had an opportunity come our way where we actually um, uh, spoke to a number of organizations. My sister was living out there at the time. Mm-hmm. Whilst I was over there visiting, I actually knocked on a few doors and said, look, I'm thinking of coming over here. Have you got any jobs going? This is what I'm all about. And one of them with a big dairy exporter, the New Zealand's biggest employer at the time, uh, phoned me up a couple of weeks later and said, yep, yeah, we, we love what you do. And, uh, and let's, let's talk about making something happen. So I uh, got the opportunity to sort of uproots and, and move from London over to New Zealand for a number of years, working in a corporate environment where they're making multi-billion dollar decisions as to what to do with their milk. Because obviously, if you start making milk powders or proteins or mozzarella or whatever cheeses that you're making, you limit yourself on what you can produce in other areas. So they would have to be thinking about price differentials and long term, short term, and um, yeah, it was a it was a wonderful experience. Um, and then with the wife six months pregnant, um, I got the news that I was being made redundant from that role. Uh, that was a bit out of the blue, and had to come up with a new plan as to what we're going to do and um, took the opportunity with some coaching to stand back and say, you know what, I could carry on in food manufacturing in that neck of the woods, or I could try something a bit different and got myself a job in banking, in business banking. Um, So going in with zero, I used to say my only experience in banking was uh, spending money on my credit card. You know, that was literally all I knew about it. Um, But interestingly, they wanted to deliberately have somebody from a non-banking background who could bring that manufacturing improvement mindset into their environment. And so I would often talk about if this loan, if this uh, sort of business loan or business credit card that you're uh, processing was a sausage, you know, (laughs) leaning back on the sausage manufacturing days, you know, how would I measure and manage that performance? And there's no point in, um, in measuring myself um, against one set of performance criteria when I've got a completely different set of performance criteria over here. So I, I lent on that experience and the, the different view mm-hmm. of standards and standard rates and uh, uh, viewing different products that you're making with different lenses and trying to get one performance okay. metric that sat over the top of it. And that that was a, an interesting um, journey to take them on a, um, a real mindset shift from a simple metric, which was how many dollars have you lent through to something that was a bit more meaningful towards their customers as well as their internal performance. Um, and yeah, did that for a couple of years. And then um, we had decided family reasons we're going to move back to the, the UK and uh, looking for jobs back in the UK. And uh, you know, as you often do, you call up your friends, you call up your network and you say, who's got a job going that, <laughs> that could be of interest to me? And a good friend of mine said, well, I'm working at McLaren. I I run the simulator over there, but and I'm not looking for people. But I know a guy in another part of the organisation who does performance improvement work, taking the McLaren methodologies out to wider businesses. At the moment, it's just him, and he's looking to grow the team. Would you be interested? 
And I'm not a Formula One fan and haven't been for my life, but, you know, it's a well-known, hugely well-known brand. It's a it's f- mm-hmm. fantastic, like, level of improvement and performance mindset. And, yeah, I got the opportunity to go and work with them for a number of years and uh, and ended up working for McLaren for seven years, working with our uh, partners, so KPMG to begin with, then Deloitte. So going out to wider industries and saying, how can we take the performance mindset, the practices, the ways of working, and some of the technologies that McLaren had built over the years and apply them to everything from supermarket shelf stacking to oil and gas drilling to airport operations? You know, so all all these different interesting yeah. projects and all with a mindset of, you know, if, if you were managing this like you did a Formula One car and a Formula One team, what would you do differently? And now I have gone independent and I do this for my clients, helping them take a, a Formula One mindset to accelerate their own performance and, uh, and help them along the way with data-driven decisions, with leadership, uh, with an F1 mindset, all sorts of uh, wonderful performance opportunities that people see when they realize that high performance is accessible to them. Yeah, so I feel like this isn't just <laughs> past experience. It's like it's an actual adventure where you're like oh, yeah. going <laughs> through is. and like there's all these actual like deliberate chapters of, of various things. Yeah. Uh, man, there's so many things we can touch on <laughs> like right off the bat. I, I guess the first thing I want to get into is just how having all these different spaces, right? You touched on how a banking, you were comparing a lot of the stuff you were doing or using a reference of making sausage. And yeah. man, I had to avoid using the pun of like, you got to see how the sausage was made. Oh. Um, but how, like even now, right, you're working with so many different companies and stuff. How are you able to take all of these different experiences and leverage those to help people figure it out? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting mindset. And I was talking to somebody about this the other day. It seems to be um, somewhat of a superpower of mine to to see the connection between things that aren't necessarily yeah. obvious to to a lot of people. And I think what, what you need to do is if you can stand back and say, what are the similarities? You know, what, what are the things that are connecting um, supermarket shelf stacking with Formula One? You know, what, what, what are the things there? And once you start peeling back the layers and saying, well, they're all about performance and they're all about being able to look at, at, at the problem, being able to um, make some changes in a virtual environment and see what the impacts are likely to be before we put something into practice. Right. If that's what we want to do that's similar, how do we take the best of that world and adapt it before we adopt it? I think a lot of the yeah. challenges that people face is they see a technology, they see a way of work and say, right, I'm going to copy that. Well, it's not about copying something. It's about making sure that it's adapted to your world, your team, your environment, such that it actually hits home and it adds value and, and is adopted by your team. So that it actually moves things forward. So, yeah, there's wonderful uh, connections between everything yeah. that you see. And I love that that model fits. I mean, perfectly with my entire philosophy <laughs> on leadership, which no. everyone listening, yeah, should know at this point. <laughs> uh, which there's no one way of of doing things, mm. and so let's look at all the different variables here, yeah. pull them in, you know, and then see how how this is going to work. Um, okay, a lot of what you're doing comes down to systems, right? How yeah. are you coming in? I guess how do you identify when a system needs to be changed or even needs to be built right from going from zero to one. Yeah. Um, and then how do you, with that, I'm just going to keep layering on this question. <laughs> how good. do you take into account those like second and third order effects, right? Like when you were talking about the dairy industry mm. of 
yeah, we might start doing mozzarella, but that means we don't have enough milk to go to these other places. So we're going to lose revenue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know I just load you up. (laughs) It's all good. And, and I think what it, that question itself points out something that's, that's very interesting. Performance is always multifaceted. It's never just the one thing. Even when you get to a, a really simple example, like F1, where you say, you know, drive car fast, car comes first, win, all good. Well, actually, it's not just that. It's it's a lot about, you know, you can drive a car really fast for one lap um, and be in the front for one lap. But that that doesn't really make a lot of difference because you you might have worn out your tires, you might have pushed the engine too much, and you haven't won the race. So firstly, you need to win the race. So if that's the time frame you're thinking of, actually, I need to win this race. But actually, I can win a race by uh, burning out the engine in that race <laughs> and put, not leave myself uh, you know, behind the rest of the team for the remainder of the year so I don't get the championship mm-hmm. points. So actually, am I, I am about the championship points when it comes to there. So maybe you need to take a slightly longer-term view. And then you can start layering on all sorts of things like what's your strategic objectives? What are your priorities? How do you want to be seen to perform? And at McLaren, there's a lot of things around sustainability and fan engagement were two things that sit outside of that standard performance. And just like, well, those actually direct how you're going to get your performance. Um, because as an organization, right. if that's the strategy that you're taking, then there's no point in saying, right, I'm going to get the championship points, but I'm going to ignore the fans. You can't do that. You've got to do that and bring the fans on board. And you've got to do that and in a sustainable way. So the first port of call for any conversation that I have with people is about understanding the results. What are the results you're trying to drive? And it's it's not result, it's results, because there's lots of them, both in terms of what you want to do and how you want to do it and how you want to be seen as an organization or as a team or as even as an individual. And I use a lot of the lessons, one of the, probably the most counterintuitive lesson, I guess, from the world of F1 that I learned was to put data last. In a data-driven world, hmm data comes last. And the thinking behind this, uh, and the, the example from the F1 world, is that you can put more and more sensors on a car. There's loads of sensors on a car already. There's huge amounts of data coming through. But every one of those sensors uh, has a weight. And that weight drags your car down and therefore has a uh, detrimental impact on your performance that you're trying to drive. So what you've got to do is you've got to have the data and the sensors that really have an impact on the performance that you're trying to drive. So, and what you really want is the smallest amount of data and the smallest amount of sensors for the critical data that helps you with performance. And so that's where I, you know, um, the model that I follow is what I call rapid performance, where you've got, you've got understand your results first, then what are the actions? What are the things that you can do that impact those results? Followed by who are the people? making the decisions and enacting those actions. Then you've got the I, which is insights, which are what insights do your people need in order to make the best decisions. And if you understand the insights that they need, then you say, right, what's the smallest possible data set that helps me generate those insights? And that is where you can really help people to understand, actually, where do I invest money? Where do I, you know, I've I've had uh, one client uh, at the McLaren days, for instance, who were thinking of spending tens of millions of euros on new equipment for their production facilities. And just through that, having that conversation of let's put data last, 
they were like, well, ooh, we don't need to spend tens of millions. Maybe we could do, you know, get 80% of the performance that we're looking at with the first one or two million. And then mm-hmm. we can build on that if needs be. But let's let's do that first instead of spending all this money up front. Yeah, I have seen some dashboards that would give people nightmares <laughs> at night. Like there's just so much data yeah. coming at you. So you don't even know what to do with yeah. it. Um, yeah, that's the I like that concept. It's the biggest challenge at an individual and an organization level that I see most people dealing with these days is the proliferation, let's see if I can get this right, proliferation of data, just the sheer amount and the volume that's out there and coming towards them. And organizations tend to think that, oh, as a manager, if I give you more reports and more data, you can make better decisions and you'll you'll get better performance. Well, actually, mm-hmm. there's cognitive load associated with that. There's headspace and you just go, I'm drowning in this stuff. How, yeah. Yeah, I, give me insights. Give me things that help me make better decisions. And then I can, um, you know, perform better for you, and that's the um, that's where taking this rapid approach can really help people to shift their mindset from data first to data right. last. Well, so let, and let's let's get into just that level of decision fatigue, mm. right? You can have all the data in the world, but it doesn't make it actually easier to make a decision. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are some of the things you're doing with teams to uh, to help them? Actually, make good decisions. Yeah, um, I mean, firstly, it's about understanding what are those decisions. You know, what are the critical things that you can change in your organization, um, and the things that you have to decide on. And you know, there are levels to do that decision as well. You know, do you want to automate the decision? Do you want to just take it completely out of people's hands and just say, right, it's simply based on rules. If this, then that. Um, and actually, in the world of F one, one or two of the teams tried to do this with their decisions around when to pit. You know, they said, "Right, the uh, the model says pit on lap fifteen, so I'm going to uh, pit on lap 15. Well, that's all well and good in theory, but the reality actually hits, and something changes. So you still are better off having a what we call a human in the loop who looks at the those insights and says, "Right, instead of asking the human." what's the decision I should be making right now? You can actually present them with insights and present them with data that says, if you do this, this is likely to happen. Or you know, based on this data, here's the best decision. Why shouldn't I be making that decision? Or what insight, or what um, views do you have that would impact the decision to pit now or not, or to invest now or not, or to produce one product now versus another? And by changing that question from what do what should I do, which has so many different options to it, to here are the options I think you should do, tell me which one you think is the best, or tell me why I shouldn't choose A over B because the data says A. The human then is allowed to wrap their intelligence, wrap their experience over that and say, actually, I know it says this, but I know that our data is a bit dodgy in that area and probably doesn't reflect the fact that we've got you know, yeah. um, Dave on the line who's less experienced than Steve, and when Steve runs it, it can do. You know, the realities of your your operation. Um, but what you're doing is you're, you're taking that cognitive load off them. Instead of saying start with zero and go to decision, you can present them with insights that say the decision should be this according to the data. What's the human intelligence that you can wrap around that? Um, and I mean. I'll give you a real life example as to something that can make a huge difference. And I really encourage leaders, if you're um, listening to this, about 
are your people being presented with data or data and information, or are they being presented with insights? And the example I always tell is I did some work at a hospital um, where they're looking at prostate cancer pathways. So when a, uh, a patient goes in, you can make all sorts of different decisions as to what treatment you're going to give them at whatever stage. And that's based on all sorts of levels of information, their blood works, their age, their, uh, their general health. Have they got any other diseases going on? All, all this sort of thing that are happening. Um, and we sat in on this board, this multidisciplinary board of experts with phlebotomists and oncologists and all sorts of ists in there, um, specialists in their field. And they all sat around and had a, the same report in front of them. And it was one page per patient. And they said, right, right, first page. Patient A, this uh, gentleman was born in September 1977. And he's done that. And after, as soon as they said born in September 1977, you could see everyone in the room calculating in their heads, well, it's 44, it's 2023 now. It must be 45, 46, 45, maybe, maybe. By which time half a conversation has gone on, they've missed that because they're not there. And it's cognitive load over right. 20 people where you could have just said in the information in front of them, 46-year-old oh. male. Because actually the, the real information, right. the, the information that influences the decision is what age bracket is that person in, combined with their blood works and their bits other, you know, their their BMI right. and all sorts of other information. So present instead of just presenting the data, the raw facts and figures, and presenting it in a way that means people have to think about what that means to them. Can you present individuals with insights that say, "Here we go. We've got a a male who's in the forty five to fifty bracket." which puts this risk level uh, higher than if he was older or younger. And therefore, let's look at his bloods in that area and look at his BMI. And therefore, bringing all this together, the data would suggest that this is the best way forward. Discuss why that's not mm -hmm. the case. And it was simple as moving from change the, the data from date of birth to age. And that had a profound effect on the efficiency and the effectiveness of that particular meeting and the decisions that went around it. Yeah. And as soon as, if, if you're, next time you're in a meeting or next time you see a report, look at it and say, am I having to translate any of this? Are my people, when I give them an information here, am I, um, I've working with a, a different organization at the moment and I see, I see the logistics people talking about a certain container that this goes in. And then the production people are worried about what size of bottle it is. And the people who put the liquids into the bottle are worried about what type of blend of product is going in the bottle. But if I'm in logistics, I've just, I just talk about container X, container Y. Instead of saying, right, container X, which, by the way, production is a one-liter bottle. And by the way, fluids people, this is right. you know, this particular fluid. Or <laughs> presenting that visually in a way that everybody understands. So that everybody has a slightly different language that they're thinking. Maybe it's finance, maybe it's marketing, whatever it is. And just think about how people are translating what you give them. And that can have a dramatic difference on your efficiency and effectiveness. Right. So I have a lot of background <laughs> yeah. in marketing. And one of the big things we do in marketing is provide mm. insights. Right. I can 
I probably have the same information that every other company has yeah. to give to you, but I'm going to serve it up in a way that you feel like you yeah. just learned something from me and I'm yeah. going to do it fast. I don't know that I've ever thought about doing that with my teams. <laughs> yes. uh, like naturally, right? It might might have happened mm. every now and then. But uh, that was the insight about <laughs> insights is great. <laughs> um, so, okay, you've worked with a lot of high-performing yep. teams. You've worked with a lot of not high-performing teams um, in order to help yep. get them there. What, uh, what, from your opinion, makes a team high-performing? Um, I think the first and foremost, and, and this is where the leadership of a high-performing team is critical, is um, is clarity. If the in order to have a high-performing team, those individuals in the team all need to be crystal clear as to what they're aiming for. And it may seem obvious, and it may seem obvious to you, but believe me, everybody has their own interpretation of it. And so a great leader, first one of the first things they do is they are clear as to what high performance is, what the performance they're after, and how that translates down to the individual. And they keep on drumming that message in as well you know every opportunity can we talk about the um maybe it's the efficiency of your plant is the app you know is the the key thing that everybody's driving towards so keep asking those questions about that or asking people what the performance is currently what do they think it's going to be tomorrow or maybe it's the financials maybe it's, whatever it is keep on talking about that and be clear as to what it what what it means to you and also why it's important so once you've got a team focused on one thing, that's half the battle. You know, you've you've got individuals who are coming together to work to a common goal. There's a sort of classic definition of a team, and the high performance is one of the crystal uh, sort of the critical things in my mind is that a high performing team trusts each other. Trust is a huge thing in high performance, and it's not just about you know I trust you to you know. Um, uh, if it's an extreme uh, situation, such as in the armed forces, you know, I, I literally trust you with my life because I, you'll, you're watching my back when I'm looking forward and I've got the itch in my back. I know that somebody's watching that for me. But in in a normal operation, shall we say, you've got that trust that people will be doing what they say they're going to do, and they've also got the trust that if they're not going to deliver, they'll let you know. And they'll be clear about, oh, I'm not going to be able to do that for you by this week, but I will be able to get it by that point unless I can have some support. Or, you know, I'm really struggling in this area. I'm two people down. I've got somebody off sick and I'm not being able to to produce that. But I could if you could support me in this area and maybe next time I can support you somewhere else. And because they're focused on the clear goal, they're focused on what's going to impact not achieving that clear goal, not just their own personal pieces. And therefore, they, they work together, they trust each other and support each other in that respect. Awesome. And <clears throat> now I think it's, it's probably pretty well known that F1 teams have to be yes. well synced up, right? You have such a limited amount of time when that vehicle hits the pit and even the driver's got to be communicating, hey, yeah. I'm hitting it right now, like this lap. And everybody's got their job and they're running through with it. There has to be, I mean, like everyone knows mm-hmm. their role, right? Like, and you have to be so focused on what that is. Uh, how, man, I, w- I would just <laughs> love to go deeper on how the importance of like knowing your role, but also like you, you kind of have yeah. to know everyone else's role so that you know where your yeah, boundaries exactly. are, right? How, how do you work with yeah, teams? Uh, I mean, it, it is, again, it's, 
it's a, a flaw that you've you've picked up on really well there is that often you can get too focused on just your thing um which can be useful to hone a particular skill um and it can be useful if everything goes to plan but as soon as things go slightly awry then knowing knowing what other people are doing knowing how you can support and knowing what your role is in that situation or not um can be uh really important so if you take that pit stop example for instance everybody knows exactly what their role is but they've also practiced those things that they know could go wrong um so be it you know instead of just a four wheel change you might need a front uh, nose cone you know you need a nose cone replacement because of an accident or something or, or maybe there's a, um some problems with some aerodynamics that you need to to fix it's like who's going to do that in that moment well if you've got a high performing team you've thought about these things you've done the often called pre-mortems um or in the world of uh, the mm-hmm. uh, military it might be action on you know it's like action on an ambush from yep. the left at this time you know it's like this is the action we're going to take yeah. if this happens and so you talk these things through you have a game plan you have a playbook and people practice those things and creating those opportunities to practice can be relatively easy in a world such as F1 because you've got a specific time that is the race. It can be less easy in a day-to-day operation, but it's no less important. So as a leader, are you creating that space for people to say, you know, let's practice, let's think about what could go wrong. We've got a really important meeting coming up. You know, I'm going to be leading the meeting and, you know, Chris, you're supporting by the way, you're going to do this bit and this slide and that slide. But if things go wrong, if we start getting questions that I'm I'm not the right person to field, then I'm going to stick my hand up to the left, and you're going to uh, that's your signal for you to go in. You know, that's a a very simple example of things where you can just get yourself ready for those bits of action and say, right, as a team, what are we going to do if these things go wrong? Who's going to who's going to stand up and put their hand up and and get involved and to as much about who's not going to get involved <laughs> you can't have everybody jumping in and trying to answer a, a question you know you've got to have some level of control around these things mm-hmm. as well in order for it to be effective yeah i mean that was something we definitely practiced mm-hmm. in the military with a like right. man up drills where i'm the leader i go down who's stepping right. up to take my role now who's stepping up to take theirs or even you know laterally who's moving into who's yeah. grabbing that machine gun yeah i'm a uh, and yeah, it requires. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a big uh, rugby fan, and uh, watching uh, mm-hmm. rugby teams performing and, and watching them practice. One of the things I, I loved a documentary about the All Blacks, and uh, suddenly they say, "Right, you, you're off. You've just been sent off." Okay, I'm not going, and that's all the information you get. And the team then has to reorganize themselves. And you might have had a critical position or, a, mm-hmm. you know, somebody um, who has a particular skill set. It's like, well, who's going to step up and do the kicking now? Or who's going to be the, you know, the scrum half and going in and picking up the ball and passing? You know, who's, who's taking on those roles? And if, if you haven't practiced those scenarios that they're not used to, then people will panic in those situations and they'll start to wonder about what they should do. But if you set those um, opportunities up, in a some sort of practice environment, then you can help people to go right. Oh, right. I've come across this before. We know what's happening here, guys. This is how we move forward, and it might be slightly different, but the principles will be there, and the the muscle memory will be there in some ways around those decisions. Yeah. Right. So, 
let's focus in on the leader for a second, right? Leader has yeah. a lot of responsibilities uh, within the company. Very frequently, uh, or at least with people that I'm coaching, uh, they started the company. They're yeah. the ones who had the idea. And so they're the ones who have been doing a lot of the work. And now they're, as a company grows, they have to start stepping into mm. more of a leadership role where they're not necessarily working in the business, yeah. but they're working on the business. Uh, what there has to be tons of lessons, right, that you have seen on just why that is so critically important. Um, yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a <laughs> couple of great stories around that, actually. Um, um, historically, if you look back to even the sort of 80s, 90s, um, the approach to Formula One leadership was essentially you're the best mechanic. You're the person with the most experience leading the team. So if things go wrong, you're almost there with the spanners and and fixing the car yourself. Might not fit, be physically there, but you know you're, you're seen as well. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask that person who uh, what to do in that situation. I'm going to look for guidance from my leader. And over the years, there's been much more of a shift to a deliberate approach to what they call decisions at the point of most knowledge. So taking a leadership decision that. When decisions need to happen in those moments, I don't want to be the one making the decision. I need to make sure you're equipped to do that. And having phrases mm-hmm. even such as leadership uh, decisions at the point of most knowledge lets people know that that's what you really mean in those situations. And you really mean the fact that, you know, if I've got somebody who is, there's a, a great story about, I think it was Fernando Alonso's car had about two minutes to go before it needed to be out on track in order to start the race. And you don't have to be that much of an F1 fan to realize if you don't start the race, you can't finish the race. <laughs> and if you can't finish the race, you can't win the race. So you've, you know, it's a good starting point to get your car on the starting grid. And the car isn't starting. It's two minutes to go, and you've got a mechanic and a team mechanics under the car. You know, you've got a, some guy, early 20s, with his uh, spanners and wrenches trying to get this thing fixed under the car with oil dripping and all sorts of things happening. And the leader uh, or one of the operational leaders at McLaren at that time was standing in the pit uh, area with a client from a partner. Because obviously these senior partners would get the opportunity to, to be there in person and experience the thing. The partner turned to um, the leader at McLaren and said, why are you so calm? You know, if this situation was me in my organization, I'd be screaming and shouting, what's this person? Who's getting them, you know, all the, the stuff that they need? What, what, do you help, what do you need? What help do you need? Can I help? You know, what my, what you, this is what you should be doing. This is what I think you should be doing. That sort of micromanagement approach. And the guy at McLaren was like, that's not my job. My job in this moment is to make sure that decisions are being made at the point of most knowledge. So the pr- things that I've put into practice, that all these tools and techniques and things that I've given to people are actually happening. So I'm looking to see if what we planned for is actually happening in those moments. And what can we learn so that this doesn't happen again in future? But then he said another thing, which is I'm looking for the eyes. In those moments of high pressure and high intensity, look for the eyes because your team will naturally look to the leaders in that team. And it doesn't matter how old they are, how experienced they are, you know, what position they are in the organization. If the team are physically looking to them in those areas of what do we do now or how do we move forward, that's a leader in your organization. And you should be embracing that and supporting that all the way through. So I just love that term of look for the eyes. 
So as a leader, your role is yeah. to look for the eyes in those times of high stress and, and uh, high importance. Yeah, I love that. Um, all right. We, we talked yeah. in a in pre-interview about a story that I, I loved about pit crew taking a <laughs> different approach to, uh, to being able to work well together that I think would be useful yeah. for, uh, for my audience <laughs> to be able to just get some other ideas for what they could do. I for training. do I think yeah, you know what I'm uh, about, yeah so. this was a, a, an interesting story about um, bringing in the ballerinas. So um, when you have a pit crew and it's a team of people, this is a classic high-performing team with a high-stress, high-intensity role to play. As a leader, you can look at that and you say, how do I get the best out of these individuals? How do I get this team working and humming and, and doing everything right? And sometimes you need to look for external influence and, and look for high performance in other places and see what you can learn from it. And it was a conversation, I believe, where someone said, oh, you know, this, this pit stop, it's a bit like a dance. You know, your whole team are moving together. And that inspired some thinking to go, well, yeah, this is about movement it's about efficiency of movement it's almost about being graceful as a team because if you can be graceful with your movements you can actually move quicker particularly as an organization and a group of people so who does this stuff really well and by ha asking that question and saying well you know ballet dancers are really good at this the royal ballet is just uh, down the road here we could give them a call and see if they can come and talk to us about what they do and how they do it and how they train their teams and how they move what they do, maybe their diet, their, their, um, their rest approach, whatever it might be. And so you bring in a different perspective deliberately to challenge what you're doing so that you can mm -hmm. learn from them. And again, as I said before, it's adopt, adapt before you adopt. So you can say, right, some of the stuff that they're doing right. there is great. And I love how they approach this. If we adapted that to our certain team and our approach and our culture, then we could take the lessons from that and make it real for us and make it value adding. And that had a real profound effect on the performance of that team and, and how well they're, they're doing and continue to do. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's a great lesson. Okay. And you, so I take notes during these, uh, which I know I'm, we're going <laughs> to end up listening to the episode later anyway, so I can, <laughs> I can get the notes then. Uh, but man, there are so many just like, one-liners that make for great like just remember to do this right like the adopt yeah. before you adapt look for your eyes or look for the eyes rather but like just things like that are just little like mm. sayings that can keep you on track this this episode is just packed with uh tons of awesome information and i am very glad that uh i was able to have this conversation with you uh, i'm gonna go through a couple more questions though please do uh, with the first being what book would you recommend everyone read well, um, a good friend of mine uh, has just released his first book and I've been supporting in whatever ways I can throughout the mm -hmm. process and giving him feedback. And it has truly been a great book to be involved with. It's about, it's called Beat Burnout. Uh, it's a book, uh, by a guy called Jimmy Burrows. And he's just released that book now. And it's all about how do you recognize and combat burnout in order to build high performing teams. Uh, both in you know, from an individual perspective, but from a team and an organization side as well. Highly recommended, even if it's just to notice the symptoms and the approaches of, of burnout for yourself 
or notice them in your team. And uh, but it really gives them real practical tips as to how to stop those things from really mm-hmm. uh, getting in there, and you can so that you can stop the rot. And you can make sure you can actually accelerate that performance right. yourself. So big shout out to Jimmy and the, and the team there for, yeah. for bringing that book out. And grab a copy of that one. Um, all right, what's, uh, what's next professionally for you? Uh, well, I'm doing a lot of work on my own offering at the moment. Uh, you know, I, I'm uh, considering the book uh, <laughs> approach myself as well. Yeah. You know, I, I've, a lot of my lessons and stories uh, come under various different guises. But I, I think what I like to do is take those offerings to people. So I'm building a, a lot of different um, stories and packages to uh, to offer to organizations and, and to teams to bring some of those stories and some of those opportunities to people so that they can adapt them to their organization and adopt them themselves. So, um, you know, the, the book's on the horizon. It might be a little while before that comes to fruition, but it's really about getting those packages right for people so that uh, I can work with them, share my stories, and uh, and help them to most importantly put them into practice for themselves and that's a that's a lot of the work awesome. that i do yeah uh all right and where can everyone find you uh so the easiest place to find me is uh my website which is paulteasdale.co.uk um or you can contact me on you know please connect with me on linkedin always keen for more connections um but what you'll find if you go to the website the first thing i offer free 30 minute consultation or conversation Mm -hmm. just to have a chat i'm not trying to sell anything i'm just trying to see what your issues are if i can support if it's a case of maybe it's not me who's best to support but somebody in my network then i'm always happy to to pass those on to other people as well but yeah uh, contact me through the website that's the best place awesome paul great conversation thank you for joining me thank you for having me chris an absolute pleasure yeah this has been a lot of fun If you enjoyed today's episode, I would love a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. And for more information on how to build effective and efficient teams through your leadership, visit leadingforeffect.com. As always, deserve it.